Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Jake and Maddie are two outsiders in in the Portuguese city of Porto who once experienced a brief connection. He's an American loner exiled from his family, and she's a French student abroad with her professor lover. One day they see each other from a distance at an archaeological site and then again at the train station and a cafe where Jake works up the courage to speak with Maddie for the first time, and they embark on a night of carefree intimacy. And that is the story behind the film Porto. Uh, and we're mm-hmm. fortunate to have with us today the director, writer, producer, and editor of the film. That would be Gabe Klinger. Gabe, welcome to Film School. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Um, th- this is in some ways a simple story, a story told often, uh, but I think you've managed to infuse this with a with a degree of intimacy and a the degree in which you are able to frame these two people in their relationships and their lives it makes it a very very entertaining and um, and enjoyable cinematic experience tell me a little bit about where the story came from sure well i mean you know what, what you're saying about um you know this is a i think well tread material you know the the story of two people who meet maybe in a, in a place that's slightly exotic to them. And, um, I think, uh, the thing about the film that we wanted to, you know, we wanted to approach this story through the, the element of memory and time. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't, you know, this moment that we were actually living, uh, that they, the characters themselves were experiencing the moment. It was, a, it was an event that they were, they're remembering, you know? So, um, so that's you know the, that's where the sort of melancholy aspect of the film comes from, and also the this idea of you know um, could this have really worked out, or you know this is the kind of questions, the eternal questions we always ask ourselves. You know, mm-hmm. are, are we meant to be with somebody? Right. Um, did we do the right thing? Did we you know? So it's you know I, I think those um, those are the questions that sort of plague the characters, and then we view that experience that they have together through that lens through that very specific lens. But um, how it came, all it all came together, um, you know, it's, 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 a, that's a, always a tough question because, um, you know, it's just, I think, you know, I had made this film, Pebble Play, uh, it's a documentary about James Benning and Richard Linklater. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I was traveling the festival circuit with it. And inevitably the question you get from everyone, if, you, know, you know, your first film, what are you going to be up to next? And I didn't have an answer for that yet. And so I just kind of, you know, it was a story that I, I, I thought of very quickly. And then uh, I started working with Larry. I started working with Anton and his character. And then it just kind of all, it, it, it all grew from there. It's, you know, and one of the things that I, I alluded to is that this, the, the way that we are introduced to the story, the way we're introduced to the characters, um, that is just a... It's a wonderful device that it allows us to uh, begin to process these people in in a way that initially is I wouldn't say confusing, but it, it's incomplete. 
And, right. and I and I like this sort of fragment, fragmenting of. This is one of the reasons that I love cinema so much. Is it a, it a, it gives us different ways, different windows into stories. And I love these kinds of things where at the end of a segment, we're st- we're, we're we need to know more. <laughs> we want to right. know more, and so this kind of pulls us along into a story. And I just uh, the style that you used in in telling the story. It, it, where did this sort of evolve from in in your process of making the film? Well, I think yeah. There's this certainly this very kind of structural aspect of the film. Um, you know, we're using different film materials. You know, to create these different textures. Um, yeah. That you know, in the digital world, that all gets kind of lost. Images are very flat nowadays. Mm-hmm. They're um, they don't have. Um, I mean, they have. They have a sort of very specific quality to them. It's a digital quality to them, and film uh, has a little bit more depth. Um, it's a little softer, um, and it's it's it can be a little more impressionistic. It can be. Um, you can approach it the way a painter, you know, will approach uh, a subject. You know, making it more figurative or more impressionistic. You know, you sort of have that option. You're painting with different types of brushes and. Um, Unless you put in a lot of like kind of post-production effects and digital effects, you you don't really get that with digital. You're just kind of capturing this very, you know, uh, yeah. very uh, sharp representation of reality. And um, and so we wanted to do something different again because of because we were approaching this through memory, you know. Um, and um, so it was important to to find all those those tools that we needed, those visual tools. Um, to be able to tell tell the story to you know and to tell it from Maddie's perspective, Jake's perspective, and then ultimately the sort of you know from from both of their perspectives, yeah. kind of shifting back and forth a bit in the, in, in the final part of the film. So um, yeah, we I, it's always a very kind of peculiar design, I think, when you when you try to do that when you when you try to tell something that's not in a linear way, mm-hmm. and there's always a risk; it's not going to work, but um, interestingly enough, we tried various different, uh, configurations of it and we just kind of kept going back to our original design of the, the movie, you know, the movie, let's say it stayed true in the editing process mm. to uh, all of our original ideas. I was wondering, actually I did wonder about that. Be- um, uh, and by the way, I mean, the formats we're describing in the different formats, yeah. eight millimeter, 16 and 35. Right. Right. And. And and they're specific to certain parts of the story and parts of the character's story. So, uh, which, right. which, uh, which I, again, once again, the language of cinema, bringing to bear all of the different elements. In, in, and you do. In this film, it's, it's changing of textures, changing kind of playing with time, playing with perspective. Um, and so it gives yeah, us... Yeah, why, why not have all those tools, yeah, right? Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. as, as also as a first-time narrative filmmaker i wanted to maybe i was a little greedy you know i said <laughs> i wanted to have different different cameras and different lenses and it was just it was just so much fun to be able to play and experiment with that and um i feel very lucky you know because a lot of the times you, you don't you don't really have all those tools so yeah no it, it was a big fight with our producers sometimes <laughs> <laughs> well uh fortunately somebody won and because it really does look great it looks great and before we get into um Wyatt Garfield and his 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 uh work on the film 
I haven't even mentioned the two wonderful actors that you were able to uh, to get for the for Jake. You had Anton Yelchin and you had for, uh, for Maddie Lucy Lucas, who are um, outstanding. They're just really, really good performances on on both of their parts. Very, uh, very believable in terms of just the the um, interaction and the level of intimacy, the the ease w- with which they. They work off of one another is just beautiful to watch. And um, tell me, I know that for a lot of directors, a lot of the the film itself is about the casting up front, and then and a lot all things kind of flow from that. Is that was that kind of the case here? Kind of. I mean, certainly that was the case with Anton because we had um, we'd met on um, a film set, and we just enjoyed uh, talking to one another. And then it just became apparent that we wanted, you know, we wanted to do this. And he, I, I saw that he was very committed. You know, his his commitment to it was unwavering. And um, and so, you know, you know, it takes a lot of time to finance and organize these things. So when when we were busy doing all of that, we also, you know, had the opportunity in the downtime and all that stuff to to really develop his character. So it was kind of an outline at first, and then it became a treatment, and then became a script, and. I was in touch with Anton, you know, during that, that whole process, and that was great. You know, when you have somebody to, to talk to, I think I was just reading an interview with uh, P.T. Anderson, where he's, and by no means am I comparing myself to P.T. Anderson, but he was talking to talking about his work with Daniel Day-Lewis on this new film that's going to come out in Christmas called Phantom Thread. And he was saying, you know, before it was a script, it was just, you know, I wanted to work with Daniel Day-Lewis again, and he wanted to work with me, and then we just started talking, and then it, you know, then it just, you know, it was a very organic uh, growth process from there. And I, I feel the same way about, I, I was happy to read that interview because, you know, in a way it sort of validates the, the same, the process that I, I uh, embarked on with Anton. You know, we, we just, we, we just talk on the phone for hours and meet up and, you know, and, and and so what if this character was more like this or more like this? And then you just sort of start building that into to, to actual scenes, you know. So, um, yeah, we like that a lot. Yeah. And and uh, with Lucy, she, Lucy yeah. came in a, a little bit later. Lucy came in when it was already a script, mm-hmm. but she still had a, a big impact on you know the, the hashing out of her character. Yeah. Well, what you're describing to me is, says two things, uh, and that is one. That film is truly a collaborative effort. It, that it is, in fact, some in terms of art, it, it is maybe the most collaborative uh, of the uh, major arts. And then, secondly, independent, smaller budget films. There is a certain yes. um, expectation, a certain luxury. It's one of the advantages of of uh, production uh, that's a smaller scale. That uh, that you you almost really have to have this kind of a relationship with your actors because so much is dependent on their performances. It really is a sort of a make or break situation for many films. And it's just, it's so good to see. <laughs> just one of the reasons. You know, I, I would say that, you know, there's this, uh, uh, Tom Gunning, the film scholar once said um, about the film Detour by Edgar Ulmer, that there's, there's nothing but genius in Detour because there's, there's no budget for anything else. <laughs> and uh, and I and I, I sort of I, I I take that formulation, you know. And he's talking about this kind of Z grade, uh, you know, picture from the '40s, a film noir that was made 
very, very cheaply put together in, you know, probably about a month. Didn't make any money. You know, these sort of, you know, it's probably on the, the lower end of, the, of a double bill with another, you know, kind of cheaply made poverty row production. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and the formulation there that I take from, as I, I say, you know, in order, when you, when you don't have a budget, you know, you need friendship. You need, you need loyalty from people like Anton and people like Larry and Wyatt. Um, when you can't afford to really, you know, uh, convince people because of, because of their salary or their, you know, yeah, or, right, right. or that, 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 or they're kind of taking a risk working with you because you know it's your first movie or whatever. It's really, it's it's all based on friendship. It's all based on that excitement of you know collaboration of sort of discovering each other's um, you know uh, aesthetic and 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 process. You know, like you you kind of you're discovering how somebody's brain works, you know, and that's, that's kind of exciting, yeah, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and also there, oh, by the way, I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with uh, yeah. director Gabe Klingler, and he is the direct, uh, director of a film called Porto, uh, starring Anton Yelchin and Lucy Lucas. And it opens here at the New Art Theater on uh, November 24th here in Los Angeles. Um, there is a little more skin in the game for for an actor who takes on a role in a smaller film when he has been in Star Trek and some of the you know right. big projects. And and again, however it happens, it is just uh, this is why I'm so drawn to to independent cinema is because of what you're talking about. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the, the sort of the story itself. We've described sort of mm-hmm. the, the fragmentation of the sort of the time frames and things like that. Um, one of the things I did appreciate about the film is there's not a tremendous amount of backstory. We're sort of here. Mm-hmm. We're here in the moment. We're watching these things happen. I wouldn't say in real time, but it certainly feels more immediate. And 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 so whatever we've got, we've gotten sort of in front. They tell us a little bit about their backstory, which I I thought was I, I appreciated that because I, I think that's this is the kind of film. This is a moment in time and or a, a, a night in time. So uh, was there much discussion about going over a lot of backstory or less backstory in t- telling this this particular story? I think it's useful for the for actors to have a backstory and to build their own backstory. Um, and, um, it, it, you know, you, you sort of see the elements of that backstory sort of seeping into their characters or what we're seeing on the screen. Um, at the same time, the movies, you know, we, we can't forget that it's the, we shouldn't forget that it's a movie about how, you know, one person is perceiving the other or their point of view of the experience that they had with the other. So uh, what we learn about the other person through the other, you know, through the other person's eyes is, is really going to be very selective. Um, so, you know, you, you remember the, maybe you remember the good things and you try to tune out some of the bad things or you, um, or, or, you know, you remember things that were a bit more peculiar about that person. So you get, you get sort of these fragments, I think. Um, and so what, it it was sort of thinking, well, what's important, uh, that Maddie should know about Jake Mm -hmm. and vice versa Mm -hmm. versus what's important for the audience to know about these characters. I wanted to, to kind of, you know, submerge the audience into that subjective world mm-hmm. of thinking about how Maddie is reacting to Jake telling this thing about his life or how Jake is reacting to Maddie telling this thing about her life, you know? Um, so, um, and, and of course, when you're playing with points of view, you, you get variations of those things. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. and you get things kind of played back, but the meaning changes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, those are all those those are all things we wanted to experiment with, um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I think that that's. I'm, I'm glad you say that the you know you weren't frustrated by it. Rather, it was liberating because for me, when I watch films, I kind of appreciate it when things are a little bit more open ended. Yeah, yeah, and yes, and I, I agree with that. And this film feels like a film that was made by someone who loves film. Uh, your background, I know, is a do- documentarian, and you inter- your, it was about uh, uh, James Benning and uh, Richard Linklater. Um, so, uh-huh. th- so you have in, it comes through in the film in ways that are just creative and interesting, right. and they keep they ke- just keep me me wanting to see more. And also, just sort of from a cinematic sort of uh, geek's perspective, there aren't a whole lot of close-ups. There's a lot of master shots in this. And I, I don't. I want to sort of explore that with you and your cinematographer Wyatt Garfield, and sort of how th- that you came to that. Because in terms of just involving us in in the characters, I just I would like to hear sort of what your perspective was in 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 that. Well, it's a, I mean that, that's a great question because um, you know I was watching I was re- rewatching uh, this the film Good Time. You know, uh, my friends uh, Josh and Benny Safty made. Right. Um, have you seen it yet? I, I know. I had them on for their first film, and I have not seen Good Time yet. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, I was I was surprised, you know, seeing it again, just how much of that film is in, is actually in close-up. I mean, you have these great, like, helicopter shots and things. And, um, but, you know, I was even talking, uh, uh, one of my old roommates is actually the set decorator of that film, or the production designer, and, he, you know, he and I were talking about it in Cannes, and he was saying how, like, you know, he went out of his way to find these amazing, you know, things like in, uh, and the, and the, and you just don't see them in the film. You know, mm. <laughs> <laughs> the things that they like, they went and dressed the set with. You know, the because because it's like close ups all the time. You yeah, know, it's yeah. very it's a very intimate film. In our case, you know, the city of Porto um, is. Um, was just such a, a key element for us mm-hmm. that I think when we're, you know, when, when Jake and Maddie are kind of navigating through the city, um, y- you want to see that you want to see their surroundings. You want that element, the, the sort of the city itself is, is expressing something to you. And, and if you went in closer, you'd just be, you'd, you'd be losing that, you know, you'd be an idiot to kind of yeah. give up what that the city is transmitting. So, there was that, and then there's another crucial element, which is this is a movie about two people. Um, so in that last section of the film, I think is especially when we have we have you know mostly master shots. Um, you know, when you have to, you have two people in a shot, you kind of have to go a little wider, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there are some scenes, I guess, when when they're in bed, and we have yeah. these kind of you know, God's eye view from above of them, you know, and they're a little bit more intimate. But you're right, it is sort of, uh, we were kind of taking a few steps back, trying to kind of understand the characters in their surroundings in the moment. And, you know, you know, Anton and Lucy, they were using their bodies in a way, too. Like, Anton had developed a specific walk for Jake. You know, he developed this, like, kind of this, hunched over yeah. posture you know like and he so you know if if we went in close we would would be losing all of that we'd be you know you know I, I, in a way i felt like we were documenting something that was happening 
And, you know, the closer you went, the less detail you got, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it was that, you know, the city and the actors, th- those were the two things that we just, we, we kind of wanted to be very inclusive of, of what they were giving us, you right. know? Well, you touched on it. And it does, in terms of the actors themselves, in terms of their, the way that they're performing in front, uh, for you, uh, right. that, that it, what sort of the, they know that they or I assume they have some idea that you're sh- you're shooting a wider shot. So you're, just so that oh, yeah. does help them bring a lot of you're right brings those other elements of their performance into it. So yeah, yeah. and 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 I think the lower you go in the um, in terms of gauge film gauge, you know, you go from thirty five to sixteen with Super Eight. Mm. The big you know you have to when there's less detail, the actor has to compensate mm. for that, right? So. 35 millimeter, you can be a little more subtle because it's the biggest frame. It has the most detail. Uh, Super 8, as an actor, if you want, if you want your um, your tick, your physical mannerism to kind of stand out, you're going to have to act a little bit bigger. Mm-hmm. And so Anton and Lucy were certainly aware of that. Well. And that, let's uh, sort of as that's sort of the 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 look that you were able to get from from their cinematographer Wyatt Garfield, and so yeah. you're, this all plays into what what I think uh, makes for. And you you alluded to the fact that uh, Porto is is a, is a character in the film. It, it really there's sort of that those narrow streets, cobblestone streets. The the, yeah. uh, the you know people are kind of to and fro up in in terms of their interaction with with the characters. It's a there's just so many things about your film lend this sense of intimacy to mm-hmm. to the whole picture to to what's going on and um that was leads me to another element in the film which i really really liked a lot was the music um it's really oh, really good music thanks. in this film go ahead sorry yeah you know we were i mean um the you know we didn't really have a a very strong concept for the music in the, at the script stage you know so it was something that came in the editing. We, um, you know, you never know. I mean, there's, you know, there's certain filmmakers like, you know, um, Quentin Tarantino and the Coen brothers. They, you know, if you read their script, music is really built into them. You know, it's they have a very specific idea of what they want. And um, that wasn't the case with us. We kind of, we were, we left that element so that we could, you know, open so we could discover it later. And, um, I worked with a music supervisor who suggested um, Emma Hoysege, uh Gabriel Merriam's music. She's an Ethiopian pianist who, you know, most of her recordings were from the early 70s. And um, she just had this sort of just very unique style and um, unique way of phrasing. And um, and so it, it just fit. It fit the, the tone of the film. It, it, it helped us bring... Um, to the surface, some of those sort of you know melancholy feelings mm-hmm. that the, the actors were already expressing, but you know mm-hmm. we needed a little bit more of, I think. And um, "Shake It, Baby," the John Lee Hooker song that you hear, you know, I think two or three times. Um, that was that came from uh, there's a, a Jean Luc Godard film, you know, uh, a Band of Outsiders um, that I'm sure a lot of your listeners are yeah. familiar with. Yeah. Um, there's a cafe scene, a famous cafe scene in Band of Outsiders, um, where there's a sort of impromptu dance that happens yeah. with the characters. Mm-hmm. And Godard wanted um, 
that John Lee Hooker song, uh, Shake It Baby, for that scene, because I guess that was, it was a popular jukebox hit in France at the time. Um, but he couldn't get it. He couldn't afford it. So he had Michel Legrand come up with something kind of similar. And if you listen to the score in Band of Outsiders, it really, it's, it's, it's like a, you know, a, a total copy of Shake It Baby. I hope I don't get them into legal trouble by saying that. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, he said, he just said, give me something like Shake It Baby. And so Michel Legrand just came up with something. And, uh, I always had that sort of scene in my head. It's, it's, it has a very, kind of specific atmosphere to it. Yeah. And I kind of wanted the same atmosphere. And I said, well, but what, what if we actually got the song? Like, it's not a popular song anymore. What if we were actually able to get Shake It Baby and do what, you know, Jean-Luc Godard was never able to do, kind of achieve his, his you know, his fantasy for him, you know? Yeah. So it was kind of, it was kind of a wink to Godard. Yeah. And at the same time, it was, it was just, it just fit that, environment so well you know we were already kind of i think invoking that period of filmmaking um and so so yeah shake it baby it was just we're lucky we were able to get it well you know 50 50 years later you can (laughs) you can get shake it baby well i'll tell you it just fit and and again the the pianist you were describing it's is it kind of a classical jazz what was it how would you it's felt classical but it didn't um the piano um work what was that her own co- compositions? Is that what I... Yes. Uh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. I think she just has a very intuitive way of working. She's still alive, by the way. She's about 94, 95 years old now, and there's a, a music foundation in her name in uh, in Virginia, actually, where, where her relatives are based. Wow. And she, she lives in Jerusalem, and um, she's a nun. She's a practicing nun. Is that right? And, yeah. And so I think she just has, um, you know, at the time in Ethiopia, uh, I think in the 60s and the 70s, there was, there was a movement of jazz, and there were a lot of people. I think the most famous export is um, Mulato Astatki. Yes. Who, uh, you know... Um, I, love, I love his work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do. You know, Jar- Jarmusch uses yeah, yeah. Uh, his, his music in Broken Flowers, and I think that's where people heard it yeah. uh, for the first time, a lot of people anyway. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, there's this great, you know, she has these contemporary, certainly she wasn't alone. Emma Hoy was, it was a community of people, um, you know, working in jazz. And um, yeah, she just had her own kind of thing going. And that's, I, I think that's what's what's so interesting about it. It's, you know, it's not, it, it doesn't sound like too much that you're, you know, yeah. of, you know, that you're listening to from the period. It's really, yeah, she's, it's, it's really, yeah, her sense of, of, Phrasing, you know, I'm not a music expert by any means, but um, but I understand that there's this, you know, um, the idea of phrasing in music or the concept of phrasing. You know, her her relationship to that, I think, is just very complex, and I think serves the movie well, or it's very cinematic in a way because yes. you know it's very unpredictable. It, so, like our movie, it's sort yeah. of. And, and right? it, yeah, it really drives the scenes. There are certain scenes where it pops on in right. in the scene, really pops, and and it just it just it's immediate. That sort of grabs you. There's sort of all the thing again. The things with cinema, you're you're subject to all kinds of visual and auditory cues when you're watching it. There are things that you can that as a filmmaker you can bring in those elements, and they really make something work. And the the music really did in the in the film. Uh, 
Oh, thanks. Yeah, and finally, um, we're sort of winding down here a little bit, but I, I, I want to yeah. just sort of uh, your takeaway and um, where your work with Anton Yelchin in this film. Obviously, people I'm sure are are know that he's he passed away last year, or was it this year? I don't know. It's some. It was last year. Last year, and um, yeah. And so, what was sort of your takeaway, your experience working with Anton Yelchin? Well, he he taught me a lot, you know, and I'm I'm in, in my uh, mid thirties, I guess now, and um, Anton is in his uh, mid twenties, wow. so we had a good decade between us, you know, and it was just very humbling that this guy, you know, um, was you know was just so knowledgeable about everything, and he taught us so much. Not only me, everybody on set, you know, this is a guy who had been in like thirty different films at this point. So, you know, big Hollywood films like Star Trek and smaller movies like like Crazy or, you know, mm-hmm. um, even, you know, Jarmusch's uh, Only Lovers Left Alive and yeah. my friend Michael Almoreda's movie uh, Experimenter and, and his other film Cymbeline. So Anton was in two of Michael's movies. And then he made this Joe Dante movie, um, Bearing the X. And, I, you know, I'd written a book about Joe, so... Um, so I was very interested in that collaboration. So Anton, you know, he seemed to be, um, you know, an auteur, like he, you know, he was doing studio stuff too, but at the same time he was attracting the attention of these, you know, auteur directors. And, um, and so he was, he learned a lot from all of them, you know, and, um, and he was very happy to sort of impart that knowledge with me and we were, you know, we're both movie buffs. So all of that was very interesting. Oh, how does you know how does this guy work, or how does that guy work? You know, it was sort yeah, of yeah. like that. We'd sit down and say, you know, what was it like to work with Jodie Foster? You know, what <laughs> what, what was her temperament on set? You know, like what did you learn from Jodie Foster? You yeah, know, yeah. and uh, yeah, so it was kind of yeah, it was like two two film dorks, you know, who um, just had a lot of downtime, you know, between projects to just kind of talk about all that stuff and then you know on set you know we're sitting there waiting for the you know the lighting team to to get everything ready and you know we just we sometimes we talk about his character but a lot of the times we're just talking about movies you know oh last night in my hotel room i saw this peter laurie movie you know and or (laughs) you know it was kind of like that you know it was just it, it was it was so much fun and it was a big learning uh process for me and I was just so grateful to Anton that he, you know, uh, took this this movie on. You know, even though I'm sure at times it was probably frustrating for him because of our lack of experience and lack of knowledge. But he was very, you know, patient and 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 giving. Well, he he plays older in the film, and he plays it very well. Yeah. And, yeah. and I I I didn't know he was that young. I knew he was young, but I didn't realize he was that young. He plays older very well. And he does a great yeah. performance, and uh, uh, I just uh, let's leave it there simply because it's just uh, you know it's one of those uh, stories that it it it's just uh, you wish you wish it had gone better or differently I should say. Um, and the last couple of things here, last thing, um, your executive director Jim Jarmish, um, uh, I see some of the sort of influences in the film, um, and I. Or a little t- well, maybe I shouldn't be so presumptuous. What what kind of an impact did Jim Jarmusch have as executive director on your film? 
Well, Jim, Jim wanted to protect us. He, he wanted to make sure that we, we um, were able to tell the story that we wanted to tell and make the film the way we wanted to make it. And so his job or his role, he, he just saw it as kind of protector, you know, kind mm-hmm. of like the, um, don't, you know, making sure, you know, jerks didn't get in our way of making the movie, you know. Uh, and there were a few jerks along the way. And, you know, Jim would step in as, you know, uh, and just sort of give, you know, he wasn't, he's not a combative person by any means, but he would just sort of like, well, I believe in this project and I think you should listen to Gabe. And that was enough, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, just to have somebody like that on your side, it's really uh, beneficial. You know, door, the the doors open uh, a little more quickly. Let's say if Jim if Jim hadn't come on board, it might may have taken a little longer to make the film. It probably wouldn't have come together in the same way. It's it was just another voice. It was another someone that you know just yeah. allowed us to go out to people and say, well, if this guy has been making movies this way for this long, and then, you know, and also. I think, you know, you separate the the wheat from the chaffs in, in a way because you, um, you know, people who, let's say, would approach this project and think it's something more commercial, they see Jim Jarmusch's name and they go, oh, it's that kind of movie, <laughs> right? Yes, that's so true. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're kind of like, oh, okay, so it's going to be, you know, an art movie made in, you know, uh, in a certain way, made, you know, in a very independent way, and... So they're war- they're forewarned, you know. Yeah. Um, well, and, that, know. and that's what I think I was referring yeah. to earlier. That his yeah. influence is yeah, in yeah. that in that you made the movie you wanted to make, and and sure. if Jim Jarmish and others hadn't been a part of your team, that might not have been the case. I mean, without I don't know if that's maybe a stretching a little bit, but you got to make the film. It feels like you got to make the film you wanted to make. So last right. last and, yeah, the, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no, you know, and I think that's true. You know, Jim's movies, he's not one of these directors who does commercials or script for, you know, a director for hire where he comes in on somebody else's project. He's never been interested in that. He's, and, you know, uh, like a movie like Limits of Control, whether you love it or hate it, um, and a lot of people hate it, um, you know, that's the movie they wanted to make in that moment. And, um, and we're and maintain this sort of sense of freedom to make, you know, and uh, that's very inspiring, you know, that he's still doing that at the level that he's doing it. Um, you know, a movie like Patterson, even though it's financed by Amazon or you know whoever, it's yeah. still nothing changes. It's still kind of this, you know, uh, meandering in the best way movie about you know a guy, you know, who has a job and goes home and talks to, you know, it's it's sort of like it's, it's, there's no aggressive attempt to become more of a movie, you know, more of a conventional kind of movie. And, uh, and it's inspiring. Yeah. Just, he's just an inspiring guy. He is. And, and again, you know, it's almost cliched to say this, I'm going to say it anyway. And that is strangers in paradise continues to be kind of a Rosetta stone for, for independent filmmaking. It's still, Oh Yeah. Absolutely. That movie doesn't get old. Yeah. Tell you what, it changed my life. There are certain films. That I'm, yeah. I mean, when yeah. I, I had never Me seen too. anything like that. And I, I walked out of the theater. I was at the Beverly Center. I walked out of the theater and I just completely blew my mind and I felt differently yeah. about movies after I saw it. 
Yeah. It doesn't, it, I saw it again last year, and it was just kind of like, wow, this is still, you know, kind of radically modern. Yeah. 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 So, well, uh, I thank you so much. Uh, the film, again, is Porto, the uh, director, writer, producer, editor, uh, Gabe Klinger, and... Um, Yes, congratulations. <laughs> and Thanks. It's, it's, yeah, no, it's fun talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, again, I was remind our listeners opening at the New Art November 24th. Keep making movies, <laughs> please. So, yeah, thanks. We'll yeah, try. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, I appreciate all your time and uh, c- congrats again. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks so much. You take care. Okay, take care. Bye bye. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.